For those who fish, this is the Drake cast. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Drake cast. This episode is going to be a bit different than what we normally do. The winter 2017 issue of the Drake is just on the cusp of hitting fly shop shelves and mailboxes across the country. So we figured we'd talk to the editor and founder of the Drake, Tom Bai, to hear about what's inside the pages of the coming issue. Later on, we're going to chat with a couple authors about a few recent books on fly fishing that are really good, including frequent Drake contributor Dave Karzinski. And finally, we get to hear author Michael Graybrook read one of his chapters from his upcoming book, which is called Cutthroat, A Journey Through the American West. With the holidays around the corner, we figured this could be a good chance to help you with your last-minute shopping. And at the very least, you'll get some insight into the magazine that you should all subscribe to, because print is not dead. So to start us out, let's get on the phone with Tom Bai, who had just returned from a trip to the Yucatan. And when I called him, he was in Oregon, where he was planning to chase some steelhead for the next 10 days. The man lives a tough life. So here's Tom Bai talking about the winter 2017 issue of the Drake magazine. Well, there's a couple of cool things in this issue, um, feature-wise and news-wise. One of the things I put the most time in was so many people, um, millions of people, actually, according to the YouTube numbers, uh, have seen the teaser from the new BBC Blue Planet, one of the big eye-catching segments in this forthcoming TV show is on giant trevally in the Seychelles that eat birds. Giant trevallies. Usually, they are solitary hunters. But about 50 of them have come here from neighboring reefs, attracted by this abundance of potential prey. There was some internet controversy over who was responsible for helping get the BBC there. And just like any big thing, you know, social media blows up and sometimes various people take credit for it. Or I was interested in that a little bit, but even more so just the filmmaking side of it. They don't just shoot wildlife that nobody's ever seen in their own environment. It's like they get them attacking their prey and just just unbelievable shots so these guys went to Seychelles and and um they shot with fly castaway which is a, a guide operations in the Seychelles so there is a fish here that amazingly has a brain capable of calculating the airspeed altitude and trajectory of a bird uh just had a very very strong connection to fly fishing because if these fly fishing guides had not seen it happen and weren't there to tell the film crew where to go and when to be there it never they never would have been able to capture it so that, that's one story that was, i think is pretty cool that a lot of people will i think enjoy reading about so what else is going on in the front half of the magazine one of the things i wanted to do in starting the magazine was always try to not have just bad news in there because i felt like there's just this even though right now it seems like a really awful time environmentally conservation wise and things like that but you know rivers have struggled for a long time 
there's always plenty of bad news if that's what you want to focus on, right? I hear a lot from an awful lot of conservation groups about a lot of the threat uh, going on right now. All of them, I think, are fair to bring up, but I don't want to run eight stories in my magazine about pending mines more than anything. I, I seriously was sitting on at least four stories that people had pitched and written about fighting potential mines, all of which are important, but I just don't want to put out a magazine that's that doom and gloom. But, I mean, we do write an update on Pebble Mine. It's a great one. Um, just when I think I've heard everything it is about it, it's a great synopsis for, for some people that want to know the current status of it. But then we also have um, a profile of Dan Bradshaw, who's a, who's a guy that works for Trout Unlimited up in Montana. And uh, he is the guy that set in motion 35 years ago to clean up that creek. It was nation's first Superfund site. This Silver Bow Creek was a tributary to the Clark's Fork, and it was just absolutely destroyed from a mining operation. And, but uh, he's the attorney that filed the case that, that eventually led to that becoming a super fun site and the state getting some federal money to clean up. And 35 years later, he went up there and caught a wild trout. So, I mean, it, it takes some time, but it's just kind of neat to see some success stories like that, even though it takes a lot of time. Uh, and then there's conservation awareness pieces like, you know, we always have. They're super important as well and because uh, it isn't all good news but um but that's something that we have in almost every issue and i think people will people love reading that stuff i we always get letters from it and they like to be kept in the loop and so that's some of the things you'll find in that front of the magazine section we have a couple good humor pieces that's something that drake is known for humor can be hard miles nolte takes a pretty good shot at uh, social media aspect to sharing uh, via Instagram, and that's a uh, fun one. After the scuttlebutt section, we've got our props, and then a red spread and a tailwater weekend worth checking out, and then our essays in the tippet section, and from that, we move on to our feature stories. You mentioned Dave Karzinski, but he also has a feature story in this issue. He's just a great writer. It's about trout fishing in Patagonia, which is a story that's been written. It's just, it's an unbelievable fishery down there. I've been lucky enough to go down there and do it myself. But Dave's an incredible writer and would would do a really good job with any story. But what I love about this one is that it, it's kind of a mix between a, a trip that you book and go and do with an outfitter, but it's also kind of a DIY. It's, it's much more affordable and they're, you have to be in really good shape to do this. There's an awful lot of hiking involved. And they're catching brook trout, monster brook trout, probably some of the biggest on the planet. And it's it's usually down there. It's more of a, a brown trout fishery. But anyway, that's uh, one of the feature stories. And then we have a much more uh, domestic, kind of a more of a blue collar kind of a fishing story. And that's a, a carp tournament that was held just outside of Chicago, written by a guy named Ryan Sparks, does a really, really good job of it. He road tripped down there from Kingston, Ontario. And having participated in one in Denver uh, for several years, um, I I wasn't sure about the assignment. I'm like, ah, it's not really that. But (laughs) it's just great. I I think if you're unaware of these sorts of terms taking place, oh, what it is about carp tournaments, but there's a level of camaraderie there that's just, it's just so much more fun and low key 
than other competitions that I've been involved with. Still, even though carp fishing has been not a secret now for the past 10 or 15 years, more fly fishermen have been doing it. But still, I think it's just eye-opening to an awful lot of people how right under your nose fly fishing for carp is in so many different parts of the country. And anybody can go do these things. I mean, and they're, they're developing around the country, and people are just lo- much less uh, high-strung than they are in some of the other fishing competitions, I guess you'd say. And then the third feature is our, our own. Jeff Mueller does a really, tells a really cool story about a, an almost state that developed called uh, uh, Absorca. I think that's how you, the correct pronunciation is Absorca. I think I said Absaroka for years, but I think it's abs- uh, pronounced Absorca. And that is a state that was going to be created in, I think it's the 30s and 40s, out of parts of Wyoming, South Dakota, and Montana. And uh, a lot of it was just this guy kind of almost Trumpian in his going out and talking about we should create this new state. But that talks about uh, how great the fishing would have been had it become a state. And just kind of neat to see some of these, some of the political ramblings that were taking place in the middle of the last century that really have some of the same kind of tones is what you're still here <laughs> in this country but it, uh jeff does a really good job with it and i think there's an awful lot of people that the only visit they've ever made to wyoming is jackson hole there's an awful lot more to the state than just jackson after the features you'll read about some international travel i wrote a story about a little appreciated bug in the midwest then there's some urban fishing some backcountry shenanigans and we end with um, and then I, I think one of the last things I'm just going to mention the permit page, which is uh, obviously it's always about permit, but there's a bunch of different things that you can, uh, a lot of different angles we can take. Sometimes it's destination based, sometimes it's science, whatnot. Um, but this, <laughs> uh, without giving too much away, just just let me know that sometimes there are these very aggressive permit out there that'll surprise you, and you can't believe that you can go out there for try your hardest for five years and not get a shot and then uh one will come along and eat two flies in 30 seconds <laughs> but you can you can read you can read you can read the details in the in the issue but it's just it's fascinating i mean what what those what those fish will do um to you <laughs> like i said at the top The winter 2017 issue of The Drake should be in fly shops and mailboxes very soon. If you aren't a subscriber, the magazine makes a great stocking stuffer. Alternatively, check out drakemag.com and buy your loved one a subscription to the mag. Give the gift that gives four times a year. Alrighty, enough of this thinly veiled advertisement BS. Let's move on to our author interviews. We're going to start with Dave Karzinski, who I called up a couple weeks ago. Uh, I like winter. It gets people off the water, and I can finally go steelhead fishing in peace. Um, but uh, in general, you can fish trout, steelhead um, on the Michigan rivers all season long. I would love to. I've talked for hours and hours and hours, and maybe one day we'll fish together. But, you know, uh, work is going to call, and we should jump into this. Karzinski is a professor in Ann Arbor, Michigan. But more importantly, he's a frequent contributor to the Drake. If you've picked up any issue of the magazine in the past decade— you're probably familiar with both his writing and his photography. 
But in addition to supplying us with a ton of content, Karzinski has also recently authored a few books, including... Jesus, let me get the book off the shelf. I I didn't... Okay. Oh, come on, Dave. There they are. Okay. The name of the book is Smallmouth, Modern Fly Fishing Methods, Tactics, and Techniques. I am one of the two authors of the book. Uh, Me and my good friend Tim Landwehr put this together, and, and actually not just Tim Landwehr, but Tim's entire... Um, crew at Tightline Fly Fishing, a great group of guides, um, tires, and general fly fishing mavens. So collective effort. Um, but yeah, me and Tim are the two primary authors um, of this book, which we're really happy with and think is pretty darn cool and um, highly encourage uh, everyone to pick one up. As a frequent chaser of smallmouth myself, I figured I'd give him a ring to chat about his recent book. Well, smallmouth for me were kind of a transitional fish in two ways. As a kid, I was a fanatical gear angler, you know, spinning and bait casting stuff. But uh, it was during a trip to the Boundary Waters when my brother and I just crushed smallmouth bass that I really kind of like, you know, got the shakes and I just really took my love of fishing to the next level. So kind of destroyed me in a way. So smallmouth became like the first game fish that I developed this, you know, pre-teenage boy um, sort of obsession with. And so that kind of pushed me kind of deeper into general uh, fishing. And then smallmouth were also the fish that I learned to fly fish um, through. I really learned to cast, mend, do all that stuff. And my kind of training partner in the enterprise was the smallmouth bass. Dave and his co-author, Tim Landwehr, who owns Tight Lines Fly Fishing in Green Bay, Wisconsin, have been friends for a long time. And a couple of years ago, they noticed that there wasn't enough good information on smallmouth fishing out there. So we saw that uh, there were no books that were as smallmouth-centric as we felt the books should be, because the smallmouth bass really is a fundamentally different fish from the trout, whereas the the trout is kind of defined by its selectivity. uh, the, the, The smallmouth is really defined by its curiosity. So it changes the way that you approach water. It changes the way that you think about presentation. It changes the way you think about fly selection. And a lot of cool things were happening um, since the Clouser books had been had been published. And we just felt that there was like so many new cool flies, so many new tools, right? Like intermediate lines, sinking lines um, that had been refined to a greater degree. Uh, and so much new know-how. So we wanted to take the wealth of our most recent smallmouth knowledge and, you know, give it to the people. So Karzinski and Landwehr decided to fill that void. Uh, my role kind of like, at the beginning, I was just like the documenter. So me and Tim and the rest of the guys, we you know, get beer, pizza, put the recorder on and just talk. So I just got tons and tons and tons of hours of information. But even at that time, when I'm listening to everybody talking, because people have, you know, different perspectives and ideas and theories on things. I'm trying to ask questions to kind of stitch it all together. While the book's chapters focus on different sections of the water column, and the flies used to target the fish there, there is an overarching theme that strings the entire book together. The hardest thing that I had to do for the book was kind of, you know, find a common narrative, a big idea to connect to all these disparate ideas and and sort of make them um, make sense. So the trout-centric way of thinking is, what is that trout eating? I'm going to look at my box and I'm going to imitate that. The smallmouth way of thinking that we're advocating in this book and kind of like the big idea of the book is smallmouth bass, because they're curious, the fly is not the food stuff so much as it is 
a presentation technology. I'm going to look where that smallmouth is in the water column. I'm going to think about what time of year it is. I'm going to look at what's happening atmospherically. I'm going to look at the light, and I'm going to make my fly decision, not by what that fish has most recently been eating or even necessarily wants to eat, but I want to make my fly decision based on the fly that I can present most compellingly and persuasively to the bass. Yeah, so that, that was kind of the big idea that kind of like enabled me to kind of uh, look at all this information and put it together into kind of a coherent narrative. And Krasinski gave me an example of what he means by looking at bass flies as a presentation technology. I was fishing with my brother uh, this past summer, late summer, low water, like super skinny water, right? And he's a, he's a gear guy. And so we needed to make long casts because the fish were spooky and the water was low and clear. So for me, I can make a long cast with something really light. And even his lightest lower was just crashing down in the water. And he didn't score that day. And I scored a number of fish. And it was really, it's all sound. So I'm really thinking about, you know, sound when I'm smallmouth fishing. Whereas, you know, early spring, fish are down deep. Maybe you want to cast that, that bangs the water a little bit. Using more aggressive sounds. Um, to my advantage because those fish kind of need to, to locate the flies. The book includes all the flies you could possibly need to catch a bass, as well as super helpful pointers for how to coax that bass onto your fly, most of which you've probably never even considered. In addition to the how-to, Karzinski and Landwehr also include a final chapter filled with essays by and interviews of other important bass anglers. One of the cool things that, that's happened kind of in the internet era is that we see how many different perspectives there are on a, on a certain thing. And I didn't want this book to say, here is the, the one and final word on the smallmouth bass. Because I don't believe that that's one, a good thing. Um, it's, I don't think that could be a true thing because everybody has other ideas. So by including that, it's kind of acknowledging that, hey, this is a great kind of starting point. Here are some other approaches from other fisheries that are significantly different. So having those other voices also kind of reinforces that idea of, hey, play around, um, invent something new. Uh, smallmouth are a really cool fish, and, you know, the, the last word on them, you know, on any fish really, you know, hasn't been written. So getting those other voices was important to kind of justify that idea. I think everyone should be fishing for smallmouth, not because they went to sell more books, but because the smallmouth is this perhaps in some circles underrated fish, it's fantastic quarry. You can do okay, you know, with trout approaches, but you can have a much different and much more satisfying fishing experience um, when you kind of uh, approach them um, as their own fish. And the cool thing about smallmouth is if you master all the techniques for smallmouth, you pretty much mastered all the techniques for anything, for saltwater fishing, for trout fishing. I think everybody should fish for smallmouth and, uh, and pick, up, pick up the book. What I found most compelling about this book is that it was written by a writer who happens to be a fly fisherman, not the other way around. Way too many of the how-to books out there are written by people who really know how to fish but don't necessarily have any writing experience. And if you can't effectively communicate your ideas because you suck at writing, it doesn't matter how much you know about catching huge trout on size 22 nymphs, for example. Once again, that book is called Smallmouth, 
modern fly fishing methods, tactics, and techniques. Karzinski also recently put out another book. And it's on a different topic, but this book also benefited from his skills as both an angler and a writer. And it's called From Lure to Fly. But before we can hear about Karzinski's other book, a few quick words from our sponsors. As always, this episode of the Drake Cast is sponsored by our good friends at Scott Fly Rods. The other day, I spoke with Brian Husky, a photographer and filmmaker with Fishbite Media, about why he uses Scott Fly Rods. I've really been happy to be part of Scott Fly Rods. They're quality rods, they have high quality components. The line guides are fantastic, and the line seeps out for the guide smoother and better than I think in any other rods that I've fished. And when you're on a Spring Creek and delicate, presentation, you need line to move through the rock. Whether it's a long cast with a single hander or satisfaction, when you fire the long cast with a spay rod and hearing that running line slap against the rod as it extends across the river, those are like food for the soul of the junkie and all of us that just breathe that stuff. Head down to your local fly shop today and give one of these fine Scott rods a toss. This episode is also sponsored by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. Hey guys, Will Flack here, guide, lodge owner, and travel ambassador for Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. From the Steelhead Rivers of British Columbia to the Permit Flats of Belize, I've spent countless years chasing fish and guiding clients in some of the greatest fisheries on the planet. Whether it's freshwater or salt, clients routinely ask me where to go, what to bring, and how to ensure their next trip is great. My answer? Call the crew at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing. After all, there are a lot of ways to get there, but only one way to fly fish the world. Alrighty, back to our interview with Dave Karzinski about his other book, which is called From Lure to Fly, Fly Fishing for Spinning and Bait Cast Anglers. So this is like the book that I am most qualified to write because I was a really, you know, intense and committed spinning and bait cast angler who was curious about fly fishing, but who had a doozy of a time making a transition, both kind of technically in terms of, you know, all of the different physics of the sport and culturally, uh, the language, the attitudes. So what this book is designed to do is to, like speak to spinning and bay cast anglers who sometimes are like, huh, dang, that looks cool, but that just looks so weird. I have no idea how to go about doing that. So it's trying to kind of make that learning curve uh, less daunting. This whole book was about, okay, um, you know how to fish a little bit. You like to fish. You're curious about this other way of doing things. Here's how I feel. It was like the easiest transition um, to fly fishing. Each chapter of the book focuses on a new species that anglers can target on the fly. I grew up in Chicago, and the one fishing shop near me, they had like one fly rod. And whenever I'd go in to buy lures and stuff, I'd look at that fly rod and I'd think, there's no trout in Chicago. Like, you know, what's this thing doing here? So what I wanted to do, you know, to speak to new anglers, potential new fly anglers, I wanted to say, hey, it's not just about trout. There's so many different, um, you know, portholes into the world of fly fishing. You can come in through carp. You can come in through pike and muskie. You can come in through panfish. You can come in through bass. Uh, so it's, I wanted to kind of break down maybe some of those misconceptions, but, uh, yeah, so I wrote this book to kind of, kind of celebrate the sport of fly fishing and make it easier for, for people looking out on the outside to, to enter into. And who is your target audience for this book? For the Drake audience, this is a book to, you know, buy for a friend or family member who's curious about the sport. But also I would argue that 
if you're a new fly angler, you know, you're in, you're in year one, two, or three, this is a good book for kind of the beginner fly angler as well, just because it, it looks at all these different species, right? So if somebody's just gotten into trout fishing, um, the bass and, and pike and muskie chapters are going to be really, really relevant to them. It'll be a nice introduction to that, you know, type of fly fishing. If you're just mostly a bass guy, this is a nice intro to trout fishing, carp fishing, um, salmon and steelhead fishing. So it, the primary audience is definitely spinning the bait cast anglers, um, but there's also a lot of, like, um, beginning fly anglers that I think would really benefit from this book. Karzinski also had a larger goal behind writing this book. So I really want like other anglers to feel welcome, and there are a lot of threats, almost a depressing number, to um, our our water resources in this country and in the world. So the way I see it, like the more people that we can get working together and respecting each other, the better off we're all going to be as anglers. So um, we'd find like a lot more common ground if we thought of each other not as gear anglers or fly anglers, but as anglers who just, you know, pursue a fish with a slightly different tool. I think it'd be cool if there was a little bit less of a divide there. But Karzinski does acknowledge that there is still a divide. And he might even imply that there's a bit of a hierarchy among fishing techniques. Of course, I'm not going in the other direction, right? Like, we can imagine part two, uh, from fly to worm. Bait fishing for fly anglers. Like, that's... That's not a book that I would ever do, and that's not a book that's going to happen. But um, so, yeah, it is bridging, but it's 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 a it's a one way bridge, I think, at this point. A staircase going up, not going down, right? Uh, oh, can I throw something in that maybe you can put in earlier or no? Uh, growing up, uh, I I really loved the how-to genre. I was the kid, you know, in the suburbs of Chicago that was just reading fishing magazines nonstop and getting all any and all books I could get my hands on. And I really kind of fell in love with that genre. So it was always a dream of mine to write a, you know, a how-to book that was, you know, more than a how-to book. Because the great how-to books, they have great stories. They have these unifying ideas. Um, they get you excited uh, about the sport. So when I got the opportunity to do these books, I really, really wanted to um, produce works that really got people excited and stuff that they could, you know, page through on a winter night and dream, used to dream about the spring, for instance. So the, the, the focus on the photos is kind of from that. I want someone to be able to pick up this book, read it intensely, you know, cover to cover, and learn a lot. I also want somebody to be able to pick it up, thumb through it, and just dreamily look at the pictures. I also want to point out the quality of photos in both of Karzinski's books. As an accomplished photographer, he took quite a few of the shots himself but he also curated images from a wide variety of excellent contributors. If we aren't careful, this guy could start producing his own magazine that could quickly put the Drake out of business. Because books should be fun. They should be entertaining. They should inspire and get you excited, um, in addition to teaching. Long live the Drake. To reiterate, the books that we just talked about with author Dave Karzinski are Smallmouth, Modern Fly Fishing Methods, Tactics, and Techniques, and From Lure to Fly, Fly Fishing for Spinning and Bait Cast Anglers. These books are available wherever books are sold. Moving on. There was one other book this past quarter that really impressed us here at the Drake. You can call me Mike, by the way. <laughs> so to talk about this book, I called up the author. Okay, uh, my name is Michael Graybrook, and I'm an architect in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
The book is large, definitely coffee table material, and it's called Cutthroat, A Journey Through the American West. And the story behind how Cutthroat came to be is almost as good as the book itself. Well, when I was studying architecture at Penn State, I took a photography course and I really got into photography, but I really put that down when I started my own business in the late 80s. I started an architectural practice and that was pretty consuming. But throughout this time, Graybrook continued fishing. But when I was fishing, I would see just how beautiful some of these trout were. And I just started taking pictures of them just to like show my wife how colorful they were and friends, you know, what, what some of these wild fish really looked like. Because most people have never really seen what wild trout, especially in their spawning colors, look like. And in the late 1990s, Graybrook's focus on trout developed a new intensity. I was on a trip into California with my wife, and I took a fly rod with me, and mostly because I knew we'd be near the McLeod River, and I thought it'd be fun to catch a rainbow trout where it came from. We found a Forest Service office, and we went in to get some maps, and there was a notice there about red band trout, and I thought, I never heard of the red band trout. I'm a fly fisherman. What's a red band trout? I talked to somebody there, and they gave me a couple more articles they had printed. And so a couple days later, I went to one of the streams that was listed having red band trout, and I caught one right away. And it was like no other rainbow trout I had ever seen. The spotting pattern was different. The spots were larger. There weren't as many. And the band of red was just like a – it just looked like a brick lying across the side of the trout. It was just so incredibly beautiful it just seemed so primal, and I, and I just was thought, I can't believe something like this exists, and I don't even know about it. And after that trip, I began to get more and more into finding out about the different trout. And one of the books I picked up when I got into this, Robert Smith, the first edition of his book, Native Trout of North America, he writes about his travels to catch different species of trout, and that book actually had photographs of the trout, and I'd never seen photographs of that many different native trout. I'd heard a cutthroat, but I didn't know there was that many species of them. Thirteen, to be exact. Well, actually fifteen, but the elvert and yellowfin subspecies are now presumed to be extinct. And you know, between seeing that red band and starting to read about it, it just took off from there. Graybrook got so into these cutthroat that... About 12, 13 years ago... I took five trips out west where I would just drive. So for five summers, I drove from Pittsburgh, usually to California, and then I worked my way back. (laughs) And on these trips, Graybrook made it his mission to find, catch, and photograph all 13 of the remaining subspecies of cutthroat trout. When, When I first started doing this, I wasn't using a GPS. I was just using map and compass. And it was sometimes difficult to even find the places, or you'd find the places and they didn't pan out. You know, sometimes a, a population would get wiped out by a fire. No one had been back there for a couple of years. And maybe when I, by the time I showed up, the, tr- the trout aren't even left in that particular watershed. So it, it was tough at times, but it's just so beautiful out west that you know that just keeps you wanting to go back and and seeing these fish like it would be so exciting to see a new one for the first time it just like was terribly exciting for me and during these five marathon road trips out west graybrook accomplished his goal 
he caught and photographed all 13. Usually I find a place where there's some gravel and I can dig out a little shallow area where I can lay the fish on its side. And some fish are more cooperative than others. Some stay there, some don't. And I have some other tricks up my sleeve. These photos are the most stunning feature of the book. Close-ups of all 13 subspecies of cutthroat in shallow water in nearly identical positions. The level of detail and continuity between the photos allows the reader to waterfall the pages like a flipbook and watch the cutthroat trout as it evolved from its coastal variety into the Rio Grande subspecies. Anyways, Graybrook took these photos and the stories behind catching them and bound them in a book that has become the definitive print collection on cutthroat trout. For example, chapter 4 tells the story of Graybrook finding the Humboldt cutthroat trout for the first time. I was driving out west for the first time, and when I got to Nevada, I just, I'd never been through Nevada. And of course, northern Nevada is very unpopulated. And I had maps of streams, and I'd talked to biologists about streams, but, you know, until you get to some place, that's a whole other thing. Humboldt trout are found only in the streams of central Nevada that drain and disappear into the ground on their way to the Great Basin. And I would see on some of the maps, well, the stream crosses the road, and I would get to that point, and there might be a dry ditch. And so you might head uphill and try to find water, and you'd go for miles. I was on one ranch that I followed a dry ditch for about three miles till I got to the ranch house, and the ranch people came out. They couldn't believe I was there, and they saw my Pennsylvania plate. I told them what I was doing there, and they, they were like in disbelief. They said, this is the stream bed here, but we haven't seen water in the stream bed here. We don't even see it after runoff. And they said, you're gonna have to go up for miles before you find any water. And so they drove me up in an ATV and said, you're going to have to walk your own ass out, but we'll take you up as far as we can take you. And so I went up there and I found some running water and I found some fish, some Humboldts, very small. And um, after I caught a couple and took a couple photographs, I wanted to get a picture of the stream. I climbed up a little hill and I realized just in this short distance, I could see where the stream came together from three little trickles could see where I had started, where there was some still water, and this was all within maybe a half a mile, and there was nothing past there. That It just totally dried up, and you know, I could just see that whole little watershed you know, right there in front of me, and there's trout there. I mean, it, was, it was pretty unbelievable. In addition to telling the tales of these fish, this book really documents the American West as a whole. Greybrook tells us where the trout exist today in relation to their historic range. You can fill in what happened between then and now. Greybrook also goes out of his way to talk about the recovery of these species. And while doing so, he makes sure to mention the men and women who have devoted their entire professional lives to the continued survival of these rare fishes. And so much of my research to find the pure strain cutthroats most of it's with the people in the field, the fishery biologists, whether it's at a state or federal level. And these people are so passionate about what they do. I mean, they're the real heroes. Without them, a lot of these fish would be in worse shape than they are. Their story is really part of the story of why these, some of these fish are even around. So, you know, they're an integral part of the whole process. To save any of these trout or protect any of these trout, you really have to protect the ecosystem that they're in. And that's just the benefit to everything. 
some of these species are have very small populations and you wouldn't think it's worth saving but but it really is because diversity is key and uh, I think that's what these people are doing and you know that that's a benefit to all of us and where can people find this book uh, for now the the best place to get the book it's not going to be out on Amazon or any place like that probably till the spring but for now you can get it at the publishers in New York it's uh, scottnix.com S-C-O-T-T and Nix, N-I-X. Uh, all of the books are signed. And there's also prints of the images available. If anyone falls in love with some of the f- images of the trout, you can purchase the, uh, some of the images that are in the book. To end today's episode, we get to hear the author and photographer read one of his stories. This is Michael Graybrook reading Chapter 11 from his book Cutthroat. A Journey Through the American West. The explosion of feathers is so sudden that instinct alone jerks my hands up over my face. I fall backward as a large bird springs into the air from the ground at my feet. A wave of air from the unfolding wing brushes my left cheek. For an instant, I look directly into the bird's eye. Now I am on the ground, my pulse pounding out of control. The bird flies straight down the ravine, low to the brush, its panicked wings pumping air in rapid strokes. Four feet away on the bank of the small stream are the severed heads of Rio Grande cutthroat trout. Pushing myself up to a seated position, I try to make sense of what is happening. I've been working my way steadily uphill, fishing on a tributary in the Rio Grande River drainage. This stream flows down the eastern slope of the San Juan Mountains in southern Colorado, north of the New Mexico border. The cascading water may have masked the sound of my approach, or maybe the bird was too occupied with the remains of the cutthroat trout to notice me. The heads of the Rio Grande cutthroats have been cut clean off. This is not the work of a bird's beak but the work of a sharp knife, the remains of a fisherman's kill. Poking with a stick through the junkyard pile of heads and guts, I count the remains of a dozen trout. The kill is fresh, and so are the nearby tracks left by an off-road vehicle. The tracks come from an old road that parallels the east side of the stream. Where the tracks cross the stream, the ruts in the stream bank are wet and shiny. These tracks probably lead back down to the meadow where this morning I'd seen smoke rising from a campfire. And I bet that the missing trout parts are sizzling in a frying pan at this moment, held over an open flame by someone who has not read or more likely ignored the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Regulation that states, all cutthroat trout must be returned to the water immediately. Rio Grande cutthroat trout are found only east of the Continental Divide in the upper Rio Grande River Basin in Colorado and New Mexico. Records from the Civil War era indicate that populations of Rio Grande cutthroat may have extended as far south as the Davis Mountains in Texas. Although the Texas populations are long gone, Rio Grande cutthroat trout still have the southernmost distribution of all the cutthroat subspecies. The northern limit of their range extends to about 100 miles north of the Colorado-New Mexico border. 
The distribution of the Rio Grande cutthroat throughout this range has been greatly reduced by the loss of habitat, but mostly by the introduction of non-native species of trout. The Rio Grande subspecies presently remains in only 5 to 7% of their historic habitat. This morning, that habitat is missing a dozen trout. My heart's still pounding, I set off again, walking upstream. The water rattles down a shallow, rock-strewn gully under and around clumps of brush. In some places, the trail veers away from the stream and skirts the edge of a wide-open, rocky landscape dotted with low scrub and grass. It is dry, but it is not desert. Nearby smooth hills shoulder stands of dark blue-green spruce and fir. A light breeze stirs patches of wildflowers at my feet. Where the trail comes close to the water's edge, I spook some small fish. I know this water. We are not old friends, but I've been here enough times to recall which stretches of the stream hold the most trout, which stretches of thin water to hike around, and which side of the stream has the better trail. My jacket, which was not heavy enough this morning, is now too warm. I stop on a small ridge overlooking the stream, put the jacket into my pack, and pull out my lunch and my map. The thought of the dead trout continues to bother me. The image of the 24 dull dead eyes won't let go. My map shows that the stream heads up on a high plateau. On previous trips, I've never reached the headwaters, and I wonder if there are trout up that high. Hoisting my pack onto my shoulders, I adjust the straps and tighten the belt. Today, I will follow the water to the top. After another half mile, the trail along the stream fades and I lose the tracks left by the off-road vehicles. The only tracks here are animal tracks. Their faint trails crisscross the slopes where they come down from the wooded hills to drink from the stream, leaving their tracks pressed into the mud along the water. Walking slowly, my eyes are focused on navigating the loose streamside rock. A shadow crosses my path, rides up the face of the boulder, then glides across the land so smoothly and evenly it looks like it's running along rails. Looking up, I see a hawk. I'm sure that it is the same bird that stopped my heart further downstream. I twist my neck around for a better view, but lose sight of the hawk in the sun. A half an hour later, at an elevation of 10,000 feet, the stream splits. I follow the left branch, which carries more water and promises to lead me up higher to the plateau where I've never been before. At the top of a rocky rise, I stop to rest and look up. High above, the hawk rides the August air in slow, wide circles. Soon, I will be out of water. I continue walking to where the slope begins to level out onto a tilted, wind-swept plateau. At this elevation, the vegetation is sparse and low to the ground. There's a lightness to the air. After another hundred yards, I pause and turn around to take in the view. Looking south, I can see the hills of New Mexico, and for a moment, I feel like I am at the top of the world. The stream is only two to three feet wide now, but it forms pools at every twist and turn and jumble of rocks. 
Each pool is only a few feet across, and nearly every pool holds a Rio Grande cutthroat. I stop and catch a few. They're small trout, five to eight inches long, where the stream drops around a brush-covered rock and into a small plunge pool, I see a larger cutthroat sip something from the surface. I crouch behind a bush on the high bank and watch the trout rise a half a dozen times. Each time the motion appears effortless. Afraid that if I move any closer to the trout, I might spook it, I slide down the stream bank and sneak right up behind it. I'm on my knees in eight inches of cold mountain water and the trout is just seven feet away. I am so close I could reach out and touch the trout with the tip of my rod. M.R. Montgomery says in his book, Many Rivers to Cross, if the fishing is hard, you are not in the real west. This is the real west. The cutthroat takes my fly in the first cast and I bring the trout into my open hand. The trout is colored olive and yellow gold and the gill plate is smeared with burnt orange. A few medium-sized oblong spots spill down the trout's side. Bold black spots bunch up near the trout's tail. The pelvic fins are translucent and shaded in pinks and blues. The cutthroat mark on the trout's jaw is red as new blood. I'm sure this is the most beautiful trout I will ever see. The hawk hovers in the sky overhead, tipping one wing and then the other, watching our every move. Many thanks to Tom Bai, Dave Karzinski, and Michael Graybrook for chatting with us for this episode. You can find links to the books we reviewed, as well as a link to buy our magazine, The Drake. All of this is available on our website, drakemag.com. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen next week with the holiday season and whatnot, but keep your eyes and ears peeled. We'll be back with more audio in the near future. Thanks for listening. This has been The Drake Cast.